0: Welcome to Canada's National Bible Hour. This is Brian Albrecht, your host and president of Mission Go.
1: Today our scripture reading is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, which says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Isn't it wonderful those of us who are believers in Christ that we have the power of God indwelling us and flowing through us? God has allowed us. The privilege of representing him here on earth and we have the privilege of sharing the good news of the gospel and growing in grace of our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what a great blessing for us but for those who are outside the family of God they are perishing and they're going to a crisis eternity and of course this should burden us to try to reach them for Christ
0: There at the cross where he took me. I will never be afraid.
2: God is my rock. I will never be afraid. God is my salvation. Whom
0: shall I fear? No one. No one can harm me when the Lord God is near. No one. God is my
2: rock. God is my rock my rock. God I, is will God be my be rock. I will never be afraid. Ever God is my rock. I will never be afraid. God is my salvation. Why should, I run? Why should I run? No one can run. harm me, no one can and I, I shall me. overcome. God. God is my, God my, God my rock. Right. Right. God is my rock. God is my rock.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Global Times when Dr. Albrecht talks to the missionary staff. We know that God is in control of our lives, and we know that God is the one that puts a hedge around us, and we know that God is the one that protects us each day. But we run into people, our relatives and the people we talk to, in great fear. But if God is the Lord, and he is the Lord of our lives, then there's really nothing to fear. And I think in this passage, Paul sort of says the same thing to the people in Philippi. Now, when Paul writes this, he's in jail, and he suffered. If you would look at the three years prior to him being imprisoned in Rome with the praetorian guard You would find a guy who is really under the gun. He had three missionary journeys. He winds up in Jerusalem. He's accused by the Jews when he's doing a good thing, trying to help some people with a Nazarite vow in the temple, and he's arrested. And from that arrest, the Jewish people made a pact to kill him as he's being transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He gets transported to Caesarea. He gets stuck in a jail there for two and a half years. pleading his case, the people there were waiting for a bribe to release him, and he didn't give him a bribe and so he didn't to Caesar. They put him on a boat to go to Rome and the, the boat's shipwreck. There's all kinds of problems with that. And finally he gets in Rome. He starts preaching the gospel and because he's a Christian preaching the gospel, he's in prison. He's with the praetorian guard. He's had a court case. He's capital punishment charge over his head and he's imprisoned at his house with guards coming and guarding him. Day, and that's his predicament when he writes the book of Philippians. And quickly, I want to go through the first chapter. And first, he opens up and he starts talking about praying and praying for one another and praying for the people in Philippi. And of course, he's way far away from them, but they're definitely on his heart. And I was just thinking through this. It's the same thing. He's got a pastoral's heart. And here's Paul praying for these people who are still in his heart, who have supported him and have done everything that they could for him. And he's trying to encourage them, but he's making some points in chapter one here. And in verse 9, I think prayer is sort of crystallized in this one or two verses right here. It says, and I pray this, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge, all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. There's three points in this prayer. First of all, he prays that their love may abound more and more. It's one thing to have love, love yourself, and have love for one another. But what he's really praying for here is that Christ's love would flow through them more and more. It's not their love that's important here in the text, it's Christ's love. They were, he wants Christ's love to pour through them to other people to be witnesses for Christ. And I think that's a a concept that sometimes we think about in our own lives. You know, we try to love one another and care for one another and meet needs in each other's lives, and that's a good thing. But the point is, what we really want is to be so connected with Christ that His love is flowing through us. And it's His love that gets the work done when we're trying to evangelism and when we're really trying to minister to other people. That's point number one. Point number two is that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere. I think what he's saying here is each and every one of us can do good things. We can have an agenda each day. We can do good things. But what Paul is asking us to do is to think about doing the best things. Each of us have 24 hours a day. The only thing that we actually have that's ours is our own time that we have control over. We can decide what to do with our time at any point in the day. And the point here is that he's asking us to do the excellent thing, the best thing. There are lots of things we can do with our time throughout the day. There are good things, there are bad things, but then there are the best things. And what he's asking us for is to be doing the best things, to measure our time, to have the time being used for the kingdom of God, and to be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. In other words, until... We meet Christ, why we need to be sincere in our faith and be genuine, not being phonies, not putting on a facade, not trying to be super spiritual, be ourselves, but be sincere in our faith to do the things that God wants us to do each other and to obey him. And then the third part is being filled with the fruits of righteousness. And the fruits of righteousness, of course, are the things that are are holy the things that are God-like, the things that are under God's control, that are obedient to the principles of the Word of God. And I think there's a principle here. I think as we are are obedient to the principles of the Word of God, and we love God, and we love to do His work, and to do His will His way, I think then that's when the love of Christ flows through us. And so that's basically the, the nut of his, of his prayer. Thank you for listening to Canada's National Bible Hour and for your prayers and your financial support for this ministry. As you're aware, this is a listener-supported ministry, and we count on your gifts to help us to continue on the air each week. This month, we're offering a pamphlet entitled I Am, which actually describes the seven words in the, in the book of John, where Jesus actually uses the term I Am. It starts out by describing why Jesus used the term I Am goes back to the time of Moses when God revealed himself as I am. Then it actually traces the the idea where people were actually starting to use the word Jehovah to describe God and describe Jesus. And then the covenant word, which we use today, Yahweh, and so then it goes and talks to each, each word, each of the seven words in John, where Jesus describes himself as, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection life. I am the way, the truth and the life. All these are described in a historical context in the Old Testament. And then it describes why Jesus used it of his own person as he proved himself to be God and to have control over nature and have the idea that people are sinners and need to come to faith. All these are in this booklet. It's very instructive. It's exciting to read. It's encouraging. And I trust that you'll write in to get your copy of I Am. You can write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R 7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. And please continue to pray for this ministry.
1: Today's message is from the Honorable Ernest C. Manning and is entitled, Faith Once Delivered. Printed copies are available upon request.
2: Thus far in our discussion of what the Bible calls the faith which was once delivered unto the saints, we've dealt with five cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. They are the verbal inspiration and divine preservation of the scriptures, the deity of Jesus Christ, the blood atonement and its role in redemption, the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, the revelation of the gospel of the grace of God to the Apostle Paul. If you missed any of these talks and would like to have a complete set for future reference, they're available in manuscript form, free and postpaid on request. Please let us know if you'd like to have them. Our subject today flows logically from our examination into the origin of the gospel of the grace of God. Be sure you recognize the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. The gospel of the kingdom preached by Jesus Christ throughout his earthly ministry was the good news that someday, as the Messiah of Israel, he will establish on this earth a kingdom of universal righteousness and peace. He will regather the house of Israel from the nations among which they have been dispersed and establish them in their homeland of Palestine, where he will reestablish the throne of David and reign over the entire earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. That will be the greatest and most glorious era this world will ever know. The curse of sin will be removed. The devil will be removed from the world scene. There will be no more poverty and want, no more injustices and inequities, no more violence and more crime. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. With righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." What a day that will be. We'll devote a whole talk to that coming kingdom of heaven on earth later in this series. Now, Had Israel recognized and acknowledged Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah when He came to this earth the first time, He would have established His kingdom then. But they rejected Him and had Him crucified. God used their rejection and Christ's death to open the door of divine mercy and forgiveness to all mankind. He laid on Christ the iniquity of us all, and He became. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Three days after his crucifixion, God raised him from the dead. And forty days later, he ascended back to heaven, from whence he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, giving birth to the Kingdom Church, made up of Hebrew Christians who believed in Christ and became witnesses of his deity and resurrection. Their witness was to members of the house of Israel, and thousands believed. Had Israel as a people believed and acknowledged Christ's deity and messiahship in the light of the added proof of his resurrection, he would have returned even then and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. But they continued to reject him and bitterly persecuted those who believed. God then brought about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a better opponent of the fledgling kingdom church. We discussed in our last talk how God, by divine revelation, committed to Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, the gospel of the grace of God. The good news that Israel, having refused to acknowledge their Messiah, God therefore proposed to extend his salvation to the Gentiles and call out of both Jews and Gentiles another people for his name to be known as the Church of Jesus Christ. Salvation no longer was to be linked to the observance of the law of God for Israel given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but was to be solely through faith in the resurrected Christ and the atoning efficacy of his shed blood. Paul capsulized the gospel of grace in these words. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, that is Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. By the grace of God and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on behalf of all mankind, the Gentiles were to become fellow heirs with God's people Israel and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And That promise is that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Or, as the Apostle John says in John 1 and 12, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. All those who believe and respond to the gospel of God's grace by receiving Christ as their personal Savior in this age of what Paul calls the dispensation of the grace of God, are referred to in the Scriptures as comprising the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, The term Church in the Bible has five different usages. 1. It is a term applied to any called out body of God's people. Acts 7.38 refers to the Israelites in the Old Testament times as the Church in the wilderness. 2. A place of worship, that is a church building. The term is used in this sense in 1 Corinthians 1120 20-22 in connection with the Communion Ordinance. 3. A local body of believers in Christ. In this sense, the term often is in the plural, as in Acts 16, 5, which reads, So were the churches established in the faith, and increased in number daily. 4. A general assembly of representatives from local assemblies. As in 1 Corinthians 14.23, which speaks of the whole church being come together into one place, and 5, the universal church of Christ referred to in the Scriptures as the body of Christ of which he himself is head. Paul speaking of that universal church or mystical body of Christ says in 1 Corinthians 12, As the body is one and hath many members, And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, for the body is not one member but many. He then compares the coordination and the interrelationship that exists between the members of our physical bodies with those of the church or mystical body of Christ. He says, If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 Paul says of Christ, God hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And In Colossians 1:18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. It is important to understand that Christ's church is both an organization and an organism. Christ himself is the founder of the organization and the divine head of the living organism. The church is his mystical body. He said of the church as an organization, Upon this rock, that is, upon himself, well, I build my church. Every group of Christians desiring to be a local assembly of Christ's church should be structured after the pattern outlined in the Bible with scripturally ordained elders and a bishop or chief elder possessing the qualifications set out in Titus 1, 5 to 9 and 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. A scripturally established church assembly is not a man-made organization. It is a unit of Christ's Church which He established and ordained to be the institution for the edification and spiritual growth of Christians. It must, therefore, operate under the rules that Christ Himself has laid down for His Church as an organization, and those rules are not open to revision or modernization, simply to conform to changing times and mores, as many seem to think. Within the numerous church assemblies or congregations, there have developed many denominations, largely as a result of some believers placing greater emphasis on some aspects of Christian doctrine and practice than on others. This is not necessarily a bad thing. Because God doesn't reveal all his truth to any one group of believers and may use the diversity of enlightenment and emphasis to advance the gospel in a society whose members are themselves diverse one from another. Many Christians today tend to be attracted to Christian organizations operating outside the scripturally structured church. I'm not suggesting that such organizations are not doing worthwhile work. Many of them are more spiritually aggressive than some churches and their members more zealous in soul winning and befriending those in need. But the fact remains, such organizations are not a substitute for the church organization which Christ Himself established. This situation points up the great need for genuine spiritual revival on the part of many churches. If the churches, and especially those who profess to be Bible-believing, Christ-centered assemblies of Christian people, were fulfilling their role as Christ intended, there would be no need and little inducement for Christians to form organizations outside the church to do what the churches themselves should be doing. Too many churches fail to demonstrate by action their professed concern for the lost, or they may fail to demonstrate the humanitarian concern Christ intends His people should have for the poor, the weak, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. Sometimes there is a tendency for church members to regard the world outside as the enemy rather than as the great body of lost humanity for whom Christ died and whom he loves and wants to save and restore and bless. In other cases, church members who cherish cherish various Bible truths are not well enough grounded in the Scriptures to give an answer to those who challenge them. The tendency, therefore, is to become church introverts, seeking fellowship and association only within their little church circle among others like-minded who therefore do not challenge their beliefs. This is not what Christ intends for or expects from His church. Another misconception is that the role of the church assembly primarily is to evangelize. The Bible pattern is for each member of the church to be a personal soul winner, exercising his or her faith in Christ among unbelievers with whom they come in contact outside the church. The church is the place to which God intends they should then bring those they have won, that they may there gain a deeper knowledge of Christ and of the Scriptures, to qualify them in turn to be effective witnesses among their friends and acquaintances outside. Day by day, month by month, year by year, God in His amazing grace and mercy, Continues to bring people under the sound of the gospel, which the Holy Spirit then uses to convict of sin and lead to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The Word of God, which is the seed, and the Holy Spirit who energizes that seed, are the essential requirements of genuine conversion. The role of the Holy Spirit includes placing believers into the great mystical body of Christ where they then should function as members one of another and subject to Christ who is the head of the body. Someday when the last call and last response results in the completion of that great mystical body of Christ, he will return to the clouds of heaven and remove his completed church from this earth to be forever with him. Hear again those soul-stirring words from 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the next great universal event predicted to take place in the prophetic scriptures. God willing, if Christ tarries, it will be the topic of our next talk in in this series. But I can't help stressing as we close today that there is no guarantee that we'll be here next week. The personal appearing of Jesus Christ for His Church may take place any day. Any time, as the scriptures say, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye.
0: I trust the message that you just heard will be a real blessing to you and that you can apply some of those truths to your life this next week. Here at Canada's National Bible Hour, we're really concerned about you and your spiritual well-being. We're trusting that you're growing in your faith and your closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also concerned about those who may be listening to this broadcast who are not believers at this point. And the gospel is very clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, each and every one of us. I'm one of them. We have all sinned, and because of that, we're not eligible to be in God's presence because he's a holy God, he's a righteous God, he's a perfect God, and doesn't want to be in the presence of sin or sinners. But God does love the world, and he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever means anyone can, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Because God loves us, he provided a way for us to have our sin problem taken away. And the solution was the Lord Jesus Christ who was God and he became man, he lived a sinless life and then he went to the cross. And on the cross, he bore your sins and my sins in his own body as he hung on the tree. He died and he rose again on the third day and he's alive. You can become a believer in Christ by receiving him by faith. But as many as receive him, asking Jesus to come into your life, unto them gave he the right to become the children of God. So if you want to be a child of God, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to have eternal life, you need to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart. And as you sincerely pray that prayer, God will redeem you. He will change you and you will be a new person. Don't forget to write in and get your copy of I Am, which are the seven powerful claims of Christ. You can write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L. R seven A seven or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. May the good Lord continue to bless you throughout this next week and we look forward to having you back next week for another
1: precious word.